Okay. <clears throat> Before moving on with what I want to talk about tonight, I just want to revert for a few minutes to one of the topics of last night, which was Sabhisankara and Nietzsche, which is actually all conditioned phenomena are impermanent. All conditions are actually unstable. Nothing is certain. We go about our business acting in this world as if things were certain. And as I was trying to indicate last night, nothing appears to be certain because even those who are your closest friends and your, you know, your partners and your lovers and everything, they don't remain the same. They change. And this kind of rap, this sort of radical instability can sometimes often be brought home to you, particularly when you're traveling in a foreign culture. And I was, just wanted to relate this anecdote to you that really brought it home when I was living in India at one point. Um, and any of you who've ever lived in India will know there's a radical instability to everything in India. Um, nothing actually remains the same for very long at all. And this was a, <clears throat> a time when I was spending a little bit of um, you know, period in Delhi. And I was at a centre in Delhi, living in Delhi for a while. And we had somebody who came in from Switzerland who had never been to India, ever, before. And they thought they'd like to visit India and go to some of the Buddhist sites in India. Um, but as you can probably imagine, never having come to India before and having lived in Switzerland all his life, uh, there's a kind of radical mismatch. You know, you come from the country that works almost perfectly to the one that works incredibly imperfectly most of the time. So about day two, this person called George was actually having a breakdown um, he just couldn't cope any longer. So we decided that uh, the centre, that we would uh, get him a ticket on the overnight train from Delhi Station, New Delhi Station, up to a place called Patankop, which is actually the foothills of the Himalaya, before you go up to um, McLeod Gunge and Dharamsala, where the Dalai Lama lives. Um, which is a lot cooler. This was a very hot time of the year. It was a lot cooler, and it's radically uh, quite a lot saner than Delhi for a start off. And so we managed to get him a first-class overnight sleeper on the train to Patankot, and we took him down, physically down to the station, to New Delhi Railway Station, founding his train. I don't know if any of you have ever been in India, but it's really quite difficult sometimes to find your carriage in India. They have these little postings on the side which they stick on the side of the carriage and you have to find the right one. And we eventually found his carriage, we got him on board. There was about three of us, I think, in our little party. We got George on board, onto his carriage, and we stood there standing, waving goodbye as the train started to pull out and the train left without the carriage. <laughs> <laughs> It was a good lesson in radical instability. <laughs> that we act as if there are certainties. <laughs> now, I don't think I've had anything quite as extreme happen to me in the West, but there is always a first. What I'm trying to say to you, even by this kind of anecdote, which is, is a little extreme, is that we act as if things are certain. We act as if they are going to unfold in the way that we want them to, including, of course, our meditation. 
as if it's going to unfold in the way that we want it to. We have expectations about what are going to happen. Those expectations are often radically undermined by what is actually happening, but we're still fixated on what we want to happen. Now, I'll say more about this in the introduction to the meditation, the instructions in the morning tomorrow. But I just wanted to point out that because we bring those same kind of searches for certainty, those expectations that we have in our ordinary life, including things like carriages are going to go with the train, um, into our meditative experience where we're actually looking for certain things to happen and they don't necessarily happen. And what we actually miss often in that search for something, that expectation, is what is actually happening. What is really happening to you? What is going on in your mind? What is going on in this flux of your consciousness, your mind? Now, the topic I really want to focus on this evening is really to do with thought. A word I've mentioned before, papancha. Radical papancha. Papancha is this aspect of the mind which we all observe the moment we sit and observe what's going on. If you really want to know what papancha is, just close your eyes. There it is. It's the tendency of the mind to spread out and proliferate. The word literally is derived from a Pali root which means to spread out. It's thought, proliferating thought, proliferating thought, proliferating thought, and it goes on and on and on. And it has an obsessional quality to it. It's also got a root in it, which means it's an obsession that we engage in. Now, before I get into that fully, I just want to say a few words about the general kind of impetus behind Buddhist inquiry, which right from its very inception has been about psychological transformation. The Buddha was probably, and this is one of the big claims I often make, was probably the first psychologist. He was the first person who took psychological processes seriously. If you look at what was going on in the ancient world at the same time as the Buddha, including India, there's very, very little or anything which bears any resemblance to what he was actually doing. He was inquiring into the psychological wellsprings of both the possibilities of our contentment and our happiness and what is actually going on in our distress. Now, if there is a good translation for dukkha in its more extreme form, probably better than suffering is distress. What goes on for most of us is a form of distress with a lot of dissatisfaction thrown in for good measure. with an awful lot of dissatisfaction going on. So the impetus behind the tradition has always been to understand the nature of the mind, the nature of the mind in order to transform it. And meditation is just part of a strategy to cultivate and transform the mind. It goes along with many other strategies in the Buddhist path, and meditation is not the only one. People often think that meditation is what Buddhism is about or Buddhist practice is about. It isn't. It's part of an overall strategy which includes things like understanding, really beginning to understand things through investigation, through sometimes through analysis, 
through hearing teachings and also by cultivating that which you begin to start to understand. And I think you've probably heard me say on the very first evening that the real way of translating this word from the Pali Bhavana, which is what we translate as meditation, is as cultivation, what we cultivate in our minds. So it's to understand the mind and to cultivate the wholesome. In the Dhammapada, which is probably the most translated Pali Buddhist text there is, there's a little verse which said, this is the teaching of all the Buddhas, to cultivate what is wholesome, to let go of what is unwholesome, and to purify the mind. That is the teaching of all the Buddhas. Very, sounds very simple. This is a very complex process. Beginning to understand the mind, to transform the mind in terms of cultivating wholesome qualities in the mind and letting go of the unwholesome qualities of the mind. And in that process, purifying or clarifying what is actually going on for yourself. So this is the general strategy that we find in all Buddhist traditions. And so it's understanding the nature of thought, understanding the topography of your own mind, is a lot of what meditative practice is about. Understanding repeating patterns, understanding what is wholesome within that mind of yours. The mind is a soup in many ways. It's not a very nice analogy, but it's a soup with many, many different ingredients, some of them quite nice and some of them quite unpleasant. Um, It's really a matter of trying to skim off what is unpleasant and leave what is pleasant in this soup of the mind. And that is, again, what we are attempting to do in some way uh, in all of the processes which are involved in Buddhist practice. Now, one of my earliest exposures, my own personal earliest exposures, was through Tibetan Buddhism. And for many, many years, I, well, many, many years, lots of, long time, studied Tibetan Buddhism. But one of my first teachers in India in the early 70s, about 1971, actually introduced me to a whole way of beginning to look at the mind, which you see embedded, and possibly many of you have seen this, there's a, there's a particular Tibetan teaching, um, Tanka. Tanka is these silk scroll paintings that they have in Tibetan temples, which is a way of introducing uh, students to basic Buddhist teachings. And this one's called the Bhavana, the Bhava Chakra, which is actually the wheel of life. It's really more also like the wheel of death because it's held, this wheel is held in its grip by somebody called Yama, who's the god of death. He holds it there and he is, if you like, the character who keeps the whole thing going, is that death is what is the ever-present facet to human existence, mortality. In part of this... Um, teaching piece of iconography, you find something known as the six realms, which in a lot of traditional Buddhist cultures, in fact, the majority of them, this is taken as being six possible destinations of what happens to you you post-mortem. When you die, you could go to any one of these six realms. And I always thought that was a rather crude teaching, and started to probe him about it, and suddenly discovered, of course, there's a whole psychological understanding of this as well, which is encapsulated in psychological texts in the tradition, including the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. 
And the psychological teaching of this goes something like this. Let me give you first a description, and then I'll explain to you what's going on. The six realms, they are little, literally six segments of a wheel. And generally, there's a little bit of artistic license, so it varies from particular tradition to tradition how these are painted. But the first section, which is in the middle, the first segment, I should say, which is in the middle, represents something which is the pinnacle of sangsaric reality. Sangsara, remember, is this propensity to go round in circles. The first dimension of this is something known as the Deva realm. The Deva realm is the realm of the gods, with a small g here. It's not a very good translation. It's not a very good way of translating the word Deva into English, but gods will do. And these represent, if you like, the culmination of living good lives, having lots and lots of merit, and reaching the pinnacle of sangsara. And so they have everything they want, according to the kind of mythologies around the devas. They live tremendously long lives, um, so much so that they never think they're going to die. But unfortunately, because they're in sangsara, they're going to die. They're going to drop out of this particular realm and take rebirth, according to this mythology, in lower realms. Um, It's like a good little teaching here. When you've reached the top, the only way is down. And they live, in a sense, off what I call their merit bank balance. Their merit one day will run out. And when their merit runs out, according to these traditions, then they will take rebirth in one of the lower realms. One little text adds, and I've often said this in this room, one little text adds, and when they're about to take rebirth, when they're about to die and take rebirth, they start to smell and nobody wants to talk to them. (laughs) I think there's an analogy in there somewhere. (laughs) But anyway, this is the pinnacle. This This is the ultimate of sangsaric reality. Then we have another realm, which is known as the Asuras. Asura is a contraction in Sanskrit of something which is Asurya. Asurya literally means the sun doesn't shine on them. These are the ones who want to have what the gods have got, um, but they haven't. They're having to strive to get what the gods have got. And in the iconography, you find what's called a wish-fulfilling tree, which has all of its fruits in the realm of the gods, but its roots in the realm of the Asuras. Actually, the battle between the Asuras and the Devas, for any of you who are opera fans, is the story of the Nibelung in Wagner's Ring Cycle. It's an Aryan mythology. So these are trying to get what the gods have got. And they're striving to get everything that the gods have got. And these two realms, along with the third realm, which is the human realm, are considered to be the higher rebirths that you can possibly take according to this, as I say, kind of much more traditional approach to this teaching. The human realm, I might add here, without going into detail, is considered to be the realm of the possibility of the development of understanding or wisdom and compassion. And that's what the human realm is about, according to this tradition. And then in the bottom segment, we have three other little pieces, 
which are the three lower rebirths. And the three lower rebirths are firstly the animal realm, which is the realm considered to be the realm of blind instinct, the realm which is devoted just to instinctual behavior, such as procreation and eating and defecation and all of the sorts of things that go on in the animal realm, and also the realm of great persecution. And I think that one still bears fruit, even if our views of animals have changed in terms of their behavior. A realm of great persecution. As Schopenhauer once said, when I look around the animal world, I see everything eating everything else. Um, And the humans eat the animals too, as we very well know. So the animal realm is a persecution and the abandonment to blind instinct, simply to fulfilling basic needs. So the human and the animals are the ones that we really recognize. And then there is another little realm, which is called the realm of the peta, or the preta realm. The peta realm is a realm of absolutely unquenchable desire. These figures, I love these little figures, the way they're depicted in the iconography. If you ever get a chance to look at one of these pictures, do. They're very amusing. Um, The Petarelm actually are are depicted as these figures with enormous bellies, tiny little necks and pinhole mouths, and with an unquenchable thirst and hunger. And so you can see what happens is anything they put in can never quench their thirst or their hunger. They can never literally take in enough in order to satisfy their desires whatsoever. And finally, let me just round this up by putting the final segment in the picture here, which is the hell realm. Um, The hell realm, unlike kind of the hell realms often the way they say are depicted in things like Christianity and Dante, for example, the hell realm here is presided over by the realm, by the god of death, Yama. And the punishments which occur in hell are meted out by yourself on what you see in the mirror that the god of death holds up to you. So in other words, you punish yourself by what you see in the mirror. Now, I don't know if your minds are working overtime at this moment, but when I first heard this, even in this very traditional way, my mind went into kind of hyperdrive in thinking, I know people like that. <laughs> you know, I know these. And I actually was kind of t- toying with the idea that these are psychological patterns or psychological types. So you could roughly say, can't you? And I used to think, well, yes, I know somebody who thinks they've got everything and really isn't paying any attention to the future because... They're just living off their kind of good fortune at the moment. I know people are striving to get to that kind of position. Um, They're really, really striving to achieve wealth and fame and all the sorts of things that that come with that. I also knew people who were instinctual, just literally abandoned themselves almost animalistically to their senses. Um, in very, very little you know, thought, but a lot of abandonment to kind of the sexual drive and the drive for food and all that kind of thing. Well, unquenchable desire, there's a lot of it around. <laughs> um, you see people, and I saw people uh, 
at the, at the kind of, in the early 70s, who were abandoning themselves to sensual desire, and also I knew people who were torturing themselves. Depths of depression. Really, really very highly developed inner critics who were um, really giving themselves such a hard time. And I went to this particular teacher, Geshe and I said to him, I said, is that the way it is? Is this what the, this teaching primarily is about? Is it about psychological types rather than the literal thing? And he said, well, it's not about the literal. Um, but then he kind of looked at me after I said, is it really psychological types? And he looked at me with absolute disgust and said, no, that's a picture of you on one day. Because that's how you're circulating. This is how your mind is moving. It's moving through all these different things. But what I thought, and I oft quote this, what I thought was really interesting is he kind of turned it around and said, how often are you human in a day? How often do you have this highest aspiration to be wise and compassionate in your life in a day? More often or not, you're stuck in these other realms, giving yourself hell, thinking that you're godlike, arrogant, abandoning yourself to blind instinct or to desire, or striving for things which are really not worth it in the end. So how often are you human? So that's a little glimpse into one of the most basic teachings about on a very traditional sense, the idea of rebirth, which I'm not going to get into, but also the, particularly the psychological element of rebirth, which I want to say more about, which is going moment to moment from literally realm to realm, from psychological state to psychological state. And each psychological state represents, in a way, your world at that moment in time. So you can live in different worlds throughout a day. This word world is used throughout the text. Um, loka is the Pali Sanskrit word for it. Loka is used in a sense which doesn't refer to an external world, but simply to the world as we experience it. You know, it's a world of our experience, of psychologically experiencing things. Now, coming back to the main theme of the evening, which is Papancha. Papancha. Well, it's Buddhism, so it is a list. <laughs> there are three things which make up Papancha. There are three things which we obsess and proliferate about. The first one is known as Tanha. Craving and clinging. Tanha Upadana, which is two elements of the 12 links of dependent origination, tanna upadana. This is the fundamental problem, in a sense, that human beings suffer from. It's the fundamental thing that the Buddha identifies as being at the root of all of our dissatisfaction. Then he identifies, for example, another problem that we all have. This is the problem of atar, self. Yeah. That self is a major issue for all of us. And self is related to clinging and craving as well. And then finally, one other thing that we obsess about or think about, uh, which is opinions, views. You know, views and opinions are very strong 
about what we obsess about, what we proliferate in our thought processes. So in our thought processes, when we begin to get a glimpse into the world of Papancha, as we engage in our meditative acts, then we start to see these themes arising again and again and again and again, the themes of clinging and craving, the theme of self, the theme of views and opinions. Now, I think I'll probably only get a chance to focus on one, perhaps two of these this evening, and we'll pick up one, the, the next one on probably on Wednesday evening, because tomorrow night I want to make an entirely <coughs> question-and-answer session, so you get a chance to you know, kind of ask some questions about what's already been said. So, Tanna Upadana. In the chain of dependent origination, dependent origination is the Buddha's description of the mess we get in. It's a description of how the samsaric world of becoming comes about. Okay, now all these words might be unfamiliar to some of you. The world of continual repetition, of keep on repeating ourselves. This is the world of samsara. The sense, and it's actually derived from a root in these languages, Pali and Sanskrit, which means to go round in circles. You know, I suggested to you the other night, have you ever had that feeling? You know, I asked you that question. I saw a lot of wry smiles come upon people's face, so I guess the case is you probably have. You know, so this sangsaric world is the world of repetition. It's the world of habit formations. It's the world of habits, good and bad. And habit in a sense in Buddhist practice, is never a good thing. Even if it's a good habit, it somehow traps you. It's something which is performed automatically, not with genuine responsiveness to something. Bad habits, well, one description I had given to me once was the whole of this sangsaric circle was one vast bad habit, something we just kept on doing again and again and again. Just as we go through those six realms again and again and again, almost on a daily basis. I would actually say probably on an hourly basis, not just a daily basis. So, when we look at also this bigger sense of how this world is constructed, it's constructed in almost a kind of chain that leads from ignorance through clinging and craving to ending up in the same place again and starting the whole chain again. Now, I'm not going to go through the 12 links of dependent origination because it would just take us too long. But let me just say something about the ignorance which underlies it. Now, personally, I think ignorance is a strange word. The only way you have to hear this in Buddhist circles when you hear the word ignorance <clears throat> is ignorance. You know, break it up into its proper English etymology, really, which is it's ignoring something. What we often do is, is doing is ignoring that which is under our very noses. You know, it's actually not wanting to know in a lot of instances. Well, if we cast our minds back to last night, what I was talking about last night, something we don't want to know about a lot of the time is impermanence. And it happens to be our impermanence, then we certainly don't want to know about it. 
So much so that we deflect it, don't we? We often deflect this idea of our own mortality. Um, I don't know about kind of other European languages so much, but certainly in English we have this wonderful way of deflecting and saying, yes, one knows one is going to die. That doesn't mean this one. (laughs) You know, it means everyone but me. (laughs) It's almost like it's deflecting it away from actually taking actual ownership of our own mortality. So it's something we definitely don't want to know about. We don't particularly want to know about dukkha either. We don't want to know about dissatisfaction, although it's there continuously staring us in the face. We get on this treadmill of trying to satisfy our desires, knowing that our desires cannot be satisfied by the things which are proffered to it. The sorts of things that we get simply don't provide the satisfaction that we want. They actually fuel the dissatisfaction that we have. The Buddha likened this, actually, in one of his little similes that he uses in the text. He likened it to a dog being thrown a bone outside of a butcher's shop. And the dog chews on this bone, which has absolutely no flesh on it whatsoever, but continues to chew it on the hope of getting some sustenance from it. And he said, this is just like human beings. They're chewing on the same thing again and again and again, hoping to get what they desire from it. But unfortunately, it never provides it. Just a lot of frustration. That's all. So frustration and dissatisfaction are the two elements are often linked to this desiring state and the lack of fulfillment or lack of satisfaction that comes with it. So we are searching for something which can't be fulfilled Um, and despite the fact that every time we engage in this thing and I said last night almost out of sheer disbelief we keep doing the same thing again and again not quite believing that it's not going to give us what we want and so we keep on doing it this is in some sense the ignorance which the Buddha speaks it's almost so so part of the dimension of that which we live in it's like the carpet that we walk on the ignorance it's like the carpet we don't notice the carpet we don't notice that we're ignoring things we're so fixated on trying to fulfill our desires trying to get what we want out of the world that we can't see that we're going at it wrongly a lot of the time. Now this is again not something, and I might add this in just at this stage, this is not something that we should beat ourselves up about. This is us trying to do our best, but with very limited knowledge and often with very limited tools in which to engage in this quest. We have been given certain things. We've been given certain things that comes from our culture, that comes from our parents. Ignorance is also, let's put it this way, let's give you another metaphor. Ignorance is like being dropped into a foreign country without a map, not knowing your way around. You don't know what the country is, you don't know the lie of the land. All you can do is rely on a few locals who actually don't really know it that well themselves. These few locals are called parents, by the way. (laughs) 
who don't know the lie of the land particularly well, and what they'll give you is a lot of misinformation uh, about it. And if we're... (laughs) I I hesitate to take the metaphor any further, I won't. (laughs) I think we can pass on ignorance. Let's put it it to bed at that point. We can pass on our ignorance quite easily, our ways of ignoring things rather than bringing ways of understanding. So, we are having this as the wellspring of our confusion. And this is perhaps another way of looking at ignorance as well. Our confusion. The confusion from which is born all of our problems. Making a little bit more serious point about the metaphor I used about being in a a foreign place, not knowing your way around, often there's a great deal of confusion there. And what we do is often actually out of confusion, trying to do the best we can, trying to find our way around, trying to use local knowledge, but we just end up being as confused or if not more confused by the end of it. So what the path is aimed at also is the overcoming of this confusion, the overcoming of this ignorance by getting us to wake up and look at what is actually really there and begin to understand it by dropping all the customs and the traditions which go, are associated with ways of looking at things so that we really begin to see what is there. Now, out of a chain, out of beginning with that, we end up at a point where out of our confusion is born craving. Out of our confusion is born this unquenchable thirst, which was one of the dimensions of papancha, the unquenchable thirst. So this is the desire, as I mentioned to you last night very briefly, that cannot be satisfied. By its very nature, it finds no terminal point where it will be stilled. I gave it to you Again, just reverting to last night, I gave it to you in a kind of little form, didn't I? I said, if only I had, I would be happy. Well, you could put that, if I only I was with, I would be happy. If only I lived here, I would be happy. All the little stories we tell ourselves about the satisfactions of our desires, which would somehow lead to happiness. You know, if only I won the lottery, I would be happy. You know, these are mythologies under which we live, because <clears throat> even when we get them, we often still live unhappy lives, you know, still not satisfied. It's very interesting, isn't it, in the Western world that as wealth has increased over the years, exponentially depression has increased as well. You know. So that, in a way, I think it shows us something that even when there is a great deal of wealth in societies, and I know it's unequally distributed, and so we can't say it's the same for everybody, but even with the growth of wealth in things like the middle class and the the wealthier classes, there is still the same incidences of depression there, showing in a way this does not lead to happiness, that this does not lead to contentment. Actually, the Buddha says the greatest happiness is simply contentment, nothing else, being content with what you have. So this desire is the desire both to have lots and lots of things, you know, the material desires, the desires for wealth and fame, what are often called the worldly desires. 
These are often there too. Not leading ultimately to any kind of happiness. However, desire is Janus faced. Janus was the god of the door in Roman culture, faced both ways. And it's Janus faced in the sense that it's not only what do I want to have, that could be immaterial things such as wealth, power, fame, you know, glory, all the rest of it, but it could also be all the material things. It's also what I want to avoid in this life. What don't I want to happen to me? An awful lot of our lives, if you actually examine your own life, will probably be based on avoidance of things I don't want to have. Probably more so even the things that I want to have. There's so much avoidance in our lives. I simply don't want that. I don't want to know about this. I don't want to see that. I don't want to be with that person. These are all the kinds of avoidances that we engage in. So... Life is a series of emerging avoidances as well as wants. As I say, the wants don't have to be simply material wants. Now, all of this, in a way, describes the realm of tanha, this thirst that we have. And again, because it's Buddhism, we have a list of different types of tanha. The first is very obvious. It's something called kamatanha. This is the desire for sensuous things, the desire for sensual objects. I think this is a really easy one to see. You know, our object, is, our culture is a very, very sensual culture. You know, we have all sorts of goodies to entertain ourselves with sensually. You know, unfortunately, what we get into is sensory overload, often, a lot of the time where we're overstimulating ourselves with sensory things. However, it's very obvious to see this one in our own lives and in the lives of others and in the lives of our culture. that We are searching continuously often for sensual goodies, lovely clothes, nice houses, nice environments, nice cars, all the rest of it. These are very much big parts of our culture still. They're huge parts of it. Then there is a desire to be, what's known as bhavatanha, a desire to be. Desire to be is, in a sense, can be a desire for something like immortality. That could be a fully blown religious idea. I'd like to be me forever. I can't think of a more horrific thing, but never mind. (laughs) Yet, it also could be the desire in Buddhist circles in Buddhist terms, for a better rebirth, for you to be born in a better place, to be born in one of the higher rebirths or something like that in traditional forms of Buddhism. But again, reducing it to its bare psychological components, this is the desire for stimulation. This is the desire to want to feel alive through new things, new innovations, new stimulations, new forms of whatever it might be that you're engaging in. Innovation, stimulation. These are all coupled with the desire to be. Things that make you feel alive, or what you think makes you feel alive. And as you can see, this is related, or not unrelated perhaps I should say, to sensual desire. Because some of the stimulation will come through sensory things as well. 
It's not unrelated to that. So this is a desire to want to do something new continuously. Yeah. It's like, where's the action? I want to know where it is so I can go and be engaged in the latest thing that's going on. That is Bhavatanha. This is a very crude explanation. I could give you a whole day on this, but I'm not going to. Then finally, there is Vibhavatanha, the desire not to be. Bhavatanha represents you on a good day when you're really engaged. Vibhavatanha represents the opting out, not wanting to be. In psychodynamic Freudian terms, these represent both the erotic drive and the death drive. The erotic drive is the desire to be. The death drive is represented by the desire not to be. So this represents also things such as suicidal tendencies or any tendencies to want not to be in any way whatsoever. I would say this is you on a good day and a bad day. And probably it happens in both in one day. The good day is I'm engaged, I want new things to be happening. I want to know where the action is. And on the bad day, it's crawling under the covers and pulling the sheets over your head. It's really not wanting to know about what's going on. Not wanting to engage with life. Now, in Buddhist psychological terms, this desire not to be also gives rise to self-abusive behavior as well. It gives rise to self-violence and violence to others. Because often we enact violence which is actually directed towards ourselves on others. It's also coupled with things like addiction too. The desire not to be. So the desire not to be manifests itself, for example, of literally drinking yourself to oblivion, taking drugs so you're oblivious. Many ways you can see this happening also by overstimulation in any form. So again, it's linked to the first of the desires, the desire for sensual things, because the desire for sensual things can also involve overload where I don't have to think, where I don't have to be engaged, where I'm just simply passive. So these are the three forms of desire that are part of Papancha. Now, in our meditative procedures, what we often engage in and look at is these things arising again and again and again. This is part of understanding the geography of your own mind, how your mind is stratified, what comes up and what comes again and again and again. There is this very much this repetitive dimension to it. It comes up again and again and again. The desires are so strong. Often we don't surf those desires. We don't ride them. We just submit to them. We react to those desires immediately. And we also, and just finally, to finish this off this evening, and I'm going to have to save the other two till we get to Wednesday evening, but we also have clinging, which exacerbates the problem. Not only do we have these wants and not wants, the desire and the not desiring, the desire to be and the desire not to be, the desire for sensual things, but we cling to them as well. The word in Pali is upadana. Upadana. 
refers often for the way, if you get a piece of wood, if you see the way flames cling to a piece of wood. When you watch it burning in the fire, they appear to cling to it. Fire was very much a metaphor in ancient India. It was used for sacrifices in Indian tradition. And the Buddha often refers to fire as being something which, for example, continually needs replenishing. To keep it alive, you need to keep on stoking it. And he refers to greed, aversion and delusion as being three fires. Three perpetually burning fires. Greed, aversion and delusion. So much so that in a very, very famous discourse, which is called the Fire Discourse, he talks about everything is burning. The whole world is burning. The world is burning with greed, aversion and delusion. He says, your eyes are burning with greed, aversion, delusion. Your nose is burning with greed, aversion, delusion. Your skin is burning with greed, aversion, and delusion. Everything is burning with greed, and aversion, and delusion. And the word upadana says, if you really want to keep your fires of greed, aversion, and delusion burning, stoke them. <laughs> upadana, clinging, actually means to replenish the fire. It also has this direct meaning in Pali, to keep on putting logs on the fire. Nibbana, the opposite, which I mentioned last night, Nibbana means to go out. It means the fires have gone out. The fires of greed, aversion and delusion are no longer burning. Those psychological wellsprings of most of our behavior cease to function. They've gone out completely. So, one of these dimensions of papancha, one of the things you can see arising again and again and again in our experience is the circulation around craving and desire. Desire and clinging. This is what we see manifesting again and again and again in our unwholesome psychological states. Now, this is not the totality of our thought, but this is very prevalent. It's something that we look at in order to understand and in order to relinquish, in order to let go of. Now, the letting go, the relinquishing, is by the cultivation of much more wholesome ways of being. So by identifying, by seeing, we can begin to see what the problem is and then start to cultivate wholesome dimensions of our personalities, if you want to put it that way, which will lead to the eventual dropping away of these dimensions such as the papancha associated with greed, aversion and delusion, the papancha associated with the craving, in other words. It starts to drop away when we start to cultivate more wholesome dimensions of being, ways of being in this world, such as compassion and understanding, friendliness. Okay, just to finish off, just to take us right back to the practice we're engaging in. At the heart of the practice we're engaging in, at the very heart of it, literally it's beating heart, is friendliness. That is the heart of the practice. Understanding is in the service of, in other words, developing an overall friendly, compassionate dimension to ourselves. 
None of this is meant to be a further excuse to make your life more miserable. None of it is meant to be that. A Sri Lankan friend of mine who was a meditation teacher who died a number of years ago actually once said to me, he said, the great problem is with when Western people get meditation, they tend to make their lives even more miserable. <laughs> because that they're not perfect at this, then becomes another excuse for beating themselves up. <laughs> yeah. It's just another way of demonstrating their imperfection. Well, hopefully I'm trying to put across the message that there is no perfection in this and that the heart of this is actually developing this friendly, compassionate dimension towards ourselves. There is no failure. It ought to be written, as I said, large on the wall above here. There is no failure involved in this practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.